Hey everybody, it's Heidi of Vibrant Visionaries, and Vibrant Visionaries is the podcast where I have conversations with clever, compassionate, multi-creative artists about their projects, process, and lessons learned along the way. So I'm really excited to share with you three conversations with three Vibrant Visionaries. I got to watch this incredible documentary about doo-wop music called Streetlight Harmonies, and I absolutely loved it. This is some of my favorite music, and this film has tons and tons of interviews and music talking with the creators and then those who have been influenced by it. So some of the iconic musicians featured in the documentary are Jimmy Merchant from The Teenagers, Anthony Gordean from Little Anthony and the Imperials, Al Jardine of The Beach Boys, Brian Wilson of The Beach Boys, uh, Charlie Thomas from The Drifters, folks from The Flamingos, The Orioles, The Five Satins, The OJs, wonderful conversations with Fanita James from The Blossoms, La La Brooks from The Swallows, Leon Hughes from the Coasters. I mean, this thing is chock-a-block with folks who created this amazing music. And then people who are influenced by it, like Brian McKnight, Lance Bass, the list goes on and on. So the first interview you're going to hear is with the documentary's director, Brent Wilson. And we had a cavalcade of mishaps trying to get on this call (laughs) that was done over Skype. It was hilarious. Uh, And at the very last minute, he threw a last ditch effort to uh, invite me to the call, even though we're supposed to be on the call already. And somehow him inviting me onto the conversation. All of a sudden, everything worked. He could hear me. I could hear him. Everything was flawless. The only thing not so flawless was that I was not thinking we were going to be doing a video call. So I was braless, makeupless, <laughs> all slumped over in my chair and uh, looking rather <laughs> disheveled. But Brent was an absolute gentleman and a professional and was totally fine with it. And I even got to see one of his family members playing with, uh, I think, a kitty cat in the background at a certain point. So yeah, so anyways, that's why when this interview starts, it's just like we're just right in there. I'm not introducing him or anything. So this is my chat with Brent Wilson. I'm a big fan of doo-wop. Um, I watched your movie last night. I really enjoyed it. And I've, I'm actually, um, I sing R&B and soul and a little doo-wop. So this really was exciting, you know, an exciting opportunity. So I'm curious about you. What was it for you that made that connected you to this music and made you say, this is an important thing I want to put out there, this documentary? Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, I grew up uh, in an era where you, you know, you had to listen to your parents' music. You know, I grew up even before Walkman's and headphones and certainly long before Disney radio when you had, you know, choices. So you're in the backseat of your parents' car, you know, you listen to the songs and the music that they listen to. So I grew up hearing this music and instead of kind of rebelling against it, I actually had a, a great appreciation for it, uh, the music of the 60s. And, and my parents, uh, you know, just loved this music. And so it was just kind of ingrained in me. And then a little bit later, 
Um, American Graffiti came along. I uh, was a fan of George Lucas and Star Wars, like you know, so many kids my age. And so I went back to kind of watch some of his earlier films and watched American Graffiti and fell in love with that mu- with that movie. And you know, there's just so much great music uh, in that film that you know from this era that it just you know just warms your heart to hear it. Uh, so that was my own kind of personal journey. And then our, our producing partner, Tim Heddington, is uh, he's just a lover of all arts and a lover of music. And we were talking one day, him and Teresa, Teresa Page, our other producer, we were all talking one day. And Tim mentioned the fact that, you know, he loved doo-wop music. And he didn't think there'd ever been a real serious film on it. And so we did some research and kind of poked around. And sure enough, he was right. There actually no one had done a film on doo-wop music. So we were really surprised. And felt like that was something that needed to be corrected. That was something that we wanted to, to rectify. So we, uh, we took into the project and we um, uh, just dove in head first to try to, uh, to tell these artists' story. Thanks for sharing that. I appreciated that when I actually went through the movie, I thought, well, I don't really know any more about Brent, but I'm glad that he gave the space for all of these folks because documentaries are all, there's all different styles, but some of them I feel like the subject sort of gets lost in the mire of the director maybe wanting to tell their own <laughs> story. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and you've got to be careful, I think, to stay out of the way of the story, right? You've got to let the story tell itself when we started doing these interviews because you know there's not a lot of material out there There there's only a few books and none of them really kind of develop really delve into the themes that we we talk about and so uh, when we started doing these interviews you know you've got to listen to these these artists stories you've got to so sometimes we interview them for three or four hours um and just to under better understand you know what it is that they went through and i think as a director if you try to you know, impart your own opinions on it, it can certainly get in the way. So I appreciate that. (laughs) Yeah, I really enjoyed the film from beginning to end. And I I did feel like it was well-rounded in um, some of my favorite books that I've read on, um, not specifically on doo-wop, but on early rhythm and blues and and rock and roll. Um, one of them I just picked up here, it's the Unsung Heroes of Rock and Roll. Mm-hmm. And there's quite a bit of doo-wop in there. Um, oh, is that right? Oh, fantastic. Yeah, Nick, uh, I don't know how to say his last name, T-O-S-C-H-E-S. And um, and then, of course, you guys talked a little bit about the Brill Building, and there's that, and, and about Lieber and Stoller, and there's that move, that book, Always, there's uh, Always Magic in the Air, Mm. That one's really good. I think you you all touched on this a bit that the all the different folks that um were on uh, on the move in the movie, but um about how there's this starting point with the black community, but that it's really like the Italian Americans, Puerto Ricans, every you know, like it becomes everybody, and especially when it gets to the songwriting portions later on, there are people who are writing the songs that were in you know in the bands, in the groups rather, but then a lot of other songwriters from like Brill Building and other outer places, and and so it was nice to hear about that. That it is really this like melting pot, wonderful combination of all these different ways that people sing so harmoniously, whatever, wherever they come from culturally. And 
that it really just becomes this music that is just so soul deep, so beautiful, so touching, so gorgeous. I, I enjoyed that. Yeah. So it kind of made me want to reread those books and then rediscover some of that music. So that's what I was wondering. The other question, I guess, was what would you hope people might take away from viewing the movie? Gosh, that's a hundred percent it. I we we just if you if you watch this film and at the end of the day you feel good, you're entertained, you uh, you're singing these songs, you're whistling these tunes, and then you decide, you know what, I want to go look up the Drifters and see what other great Drifter songs are out there. Or, oh my gosh, that song from the Crystals is just fantastic. What other Crystal songs? are out there and you go to iTunes or whatever or, and, or Spotify and you stream some of these songs and you want to dig a little deeper, that to me would be the ultimate compliment because that was, that was our goal. It was to want to entertain. Um, you know, we didn't want to lecture. Uh, we didn't want, I think if you, as a documentary filmmaker, if you're trying to make a history lesson, you know, you're going to, you're going to lose a lot of your audience. So it's never intended to be a history lesson. It's intended to, to entertain. And if you, just are singing these songs and then just decide, yeah, I want to go learn a little bit more. I want to dig a little deeper in my Spotify playlist or my Apple streaming, then that's it. Nothing would make me happier. That's great. Well, I definitely think that you have done a wonderful job. And, and yeah, I think there's just, just enough contextual history beats throughout the movie to sort of connect where we were in in the world and and, you know, touching on civil rights and, of course, the traveling to the South and how different that was of an experience. And, and yeah, like I'm, I'm a Generation X person. So and my parents were big music fans. So luckily, they played a lot of great music that I got to discover as a kid. And then, yeah, I was one of the, the Sha-na-na, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, I remember, you know, watching uh, Laverne and Shirley and and um, happy days, and, and you know, even as a kid, knowing they were kind of they were cheesy, light and fluffy versions of the fifties. But yeah, like like I had forgotten with the Sean Anna show that you guys sh- share some of the how much they exposed us to the the original performers. You know, absolutely, the Sean Anna thing was huge, wasn't it? If you mm-hmm. grew up at that time, that was just a show that you watched, and it just, um, I think you're right. It just it kind of seeps into you. It, it's not something maybe you're even conscious of or you think about, but it just kind of in happy days and whether it's Potsy singing those songs or whatever, <laughs> they just kind of find a way to seep into you. And, you know, my theory has always been if it's good music you'll and you're exposed to it, you'll recognize it. The ear is the ear, right? It's, you know, you just have to be exposed to it. And that's what we wanted to do with this film. And I think in our generation, we were fortunate enough to to be exposed to it through Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley and Sha Na Na. And it played a huge role in that next generation of, uh, of, of just admirers of that music. So, yeah, absolutely. What goes behind the process of making something like this, where you're interviewing so many different people, looks like people from all over the U.S. and other locations? Like, what goes into doing this kind of documentary with so many different talking heads and such. Yeah, it was a, it was an absolute task for sure. Our lead producer, uh, Teresa page, just, uh, she was a hound dog 
been trying to locate these artists. Many of them, of course, aren't on social media. You can't just email them. You know, have Instagram pages or something. And so it was really difficult to find them and track them down, earn their trust. So many of them were skeptical and cynical, as they should be. You know, they've had their music ripped off, their lyrics stolen, those types of things. And so, you know, here comes a couple of people want to go, hey, now we want to tell your story. And, you know, so they were very cynical and skeptical. So we had to earn their trust. Um, and then, as you pointed out, you know, you you can't afford on a budget like this to be able to do, you know, 40 different individual interviews. So you try to coordinate as many. We're going to be in the Northeast on these X amount of days, and then we're going to be in the Midwest for this amount of days, and in L.A. And so you try to coordinate the best you can, you know, with once you find these artists uh, to be able to get them all in one place so that you can, you know, get as much bang for your buck. Because, you know, we, we absolutely wanted every dollar on the screen. And, you know, with a film like this, with a music documentary, we have 32 songs that, that, are, uh, that are cleared, master recordings. That, the film, film still archive and music clearances account for about 50% of the budget of this film, just clearing the music. So you have to be uh, very fugal with your, uh, with your interviews and getting as much as you can. So it was, it was a task. The coordination aspect of this is one of the reasons it took so long to get this film. And then once you, you do have them in the chair and you are interviewing them, you know, you know it's difficult to get them back. So you just you interview them for as long as you can and let their story lead you because so much of that research comes from just hearing them and them telling their stories. And if you're actively engaged as an interviewer, you're, you're listening. And so you're, you're doing those follow-up questions and that leads you down a certain path and forms the, the film in ways that you didn't know before you began the interview. It was definitely a labor of love, three years in the making. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's great. And actually, that was my next question. So you answered it already, which was the, you know, I'm sure there was a certain type of outline or structure you wanted, but that, that it would make sense that as you spoke with folks that that would lead to more structure or more where, you know, where the, the film ultimately lands, because you just don't know what those stories are going to reveal. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And particularly when you don't have a lot of research material, um, like as we didn't, so you're, you know, you're hearing this stuff for the first time. One of the things that, you know, that I did that I was, I wanted to try to get across as best I could was an actual three-act structure like a feature film. So we, you know, we could, you kind of mold the story so that it ebbs and flows like a feature. Because again, I thought if, if the film felt like something you had seen before or it felt organic, then you would be more open to receiving it. And I think that's always the idea, is to try to get as many people as you can to see your film. Um, that was that was our goal, because we wanted as many people as we could to see the film. Well, I will definitely do my part through my podcast and my other various channels, and I'm going to cut us off simply because I have another exciting interview with another star with a star of the film so thank you so much for taking the time brent i really appreciate it and thank you for making this movie absolutely thank you thank you for all of your support we genuinely appreciate it thank you my pleasure thanks so much thank you bye-bye Okay, so that was my interview with Brent. And right at this moment, I wanted to share where you can watch Streetlight Harmonies. So you can check out Streetlight Harmonies right now on iTunes, Google Play, Vudu, 
Vimeo, Xbox, and Amazon Prime Video. You can also follow them on uh, Instagram at Street Light Harmonies. And then on Facebook, you can find them at SLH Movie. So my next interview is with the amazingly talented Ron Dante. So Ron Dante didn't technically sing doo-wop, but music that was very much influenced by doo-wop, including the huge hit Sugar Sugar by the Archies. I highly recommend checking out Ron Dante's Wikipedia page. I'm going to read just a touch from it because... Ron Dante has had and still has an amazingly interesting, fascinating life. He's so prolific. He has produced and recorded some of the most popular music of uh, rock and roll and pop history. He was born in Staten Island, New York. Uh, The Archie's single Sugar Sugar was the number one selling record of 1969 in the United States. Four years earlier, Dante had been a member of the parody group, The Detergents, who recorded a novelty song called Leader of the Laundromat, like Leader of the Pack. Concurrent with his work on the Archie's project, Dante was also employed as a session singer and performed many television and commercial jingles. And as you will hear in my interview, he is um, still a hardworking musician after all these years. Just a wonderful personality. So thank you so much, Ron. It was such a pleasure to talk with you. And here's my interview with Ron Dante. Thank you for taking a few minutes to talk with me. I'm going to talk with Vito Picone in about 20 minutes. So we'll just kind of make this a short, sweet little chat, if you don't mind. Not at all. So I am so, uh, I'm not an expert in doo-wop, but I am a big fan and, and also of um, just a lot of music from the 50s and 60s, R&B and soul and pop in general. And... I was just curious with you, what, what was it like being a part of this film? What, what was important for you to contribute or what, what did you enjoy about it? Anything about the process of being part of the, the movie? Well, first of all, I was really honored to be asked to be part of the uh, film. I thought it was about time that these groups and this source of great pop music and doo-wop music was being honored in a really good documentary. It came through my friend Vito Picone, who one of the guys in the Elegance, his doo-wop group that became very famous in the late 50s, well, he used to work for my dad. And uh, once they rehearsed in my cellar, they, they played at my graduation from school, from the eighth grade. They actually sang Little Star, which was their biggest hit. And I played guitar for them. I was only like 14. And uh, they took me to my first recording session. So I was steeped in this kind of music. When Vito told me about the documentary, he said, you should be a part of it since you went on to use a lot of the uh, skills that people learn singing doo-wop in the other productions that I did over the years. So I was very honored to be in it. Uh, I'm I'm glad that they used some of my quotes about the uh, famous Brill Building, one of the great music meccas in Manhattan. And I was really happy that uh, they, they honored these people. And a lot of the guys and girls are still around. Yeah, that was really exciting. I got to watch the film last night here in my home and and sing along to the music and, and just, you know, kind of refamiliarize myself with 
some of the stuff that I love. And, and it was so fun that there were such a variety of folks that were still around and, and had fond memories and, and told those stories. And um, yeah, it was really a, a, a joyful exploration of such such stirring and gorgeous music that, yeah, I, I kind of forget, I guess. I mean, I'm in my 50s and I was brought up on this and blues and soul and rhythm and blues and rock and roll. And, and, and I kind of forget that, yeah, there's just generations of people who may, you know, may know some of the, the modern pop music, but not really know the lineage. So this is exciting. Yeah, well, you're, you're of the generation that um, my group, the Archies, were probably part of your upbringing with Sugar Sugar. That I was the lead singer of the Archies. So I, a lot of people still, still play that song. I still perform it around the world. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but, <laughs> and, and, a lot of, and a lot of the harmonies that were used in the Archies, the background harmonies came right out of doo-wop music. Same voicings same kind of sounds that we would use, oohs and ahs and, you know, la-la-las and na-na-nas, all that stuff that I learned as a kid, I used in my Archie records. And of course, after that, when I became Barry Manilow's producer. Yeah, that's amazing. I, I was looking through your career um, on uh, Wikipedia a bit and was just sort of blown away by all this stuff, the falsetto vocals that you doing, like the Betty and Veronica parts and and uh, <laughs> your work with Barry Manilow and, and also the, the things that you've done that have been more on the... Um, parody side of things. I'm a big fan of that movie, This is Spinal Tap, and other things that are sort of in the in the parody or um, spoof kind of stuff. But I, I really enjoy things that are spoofy, but also are just really well produced and, and wonderful to listen to at the, the same time. And it looks like you've been involved in a lot of different things, including doing some work with the Turtles, who I was a, a big fan of as a as a youngster as well. Yeah, I was uh, I was on the uh, Happy Together tour uh, about three years ago, uh, opening for the Turtles uh, with my Archie's songs. And the next year they said, listen, Howard, the lead singer, doesn't want to tour anymore. He wants you to become the lead singer of the Turtles. So for the last two seasons, last two summers, I have been the lead singer of the Turtles, getting to sing Happy Together every night at these shows, 50, 60 shows every summer we're doing. Wow. We had it all planned for this summer, but it, it, uh, we're pushing back some of the opening dates, like the first 10 dates uh, in June, so that uh, this uh, corona thing can pass over, hopefully. Yeah, for sure. On that tip, I'm curious, how is it with um, touring and doing all the things that you've done as a as a busy performer and producer, how do you not burn out or how do you try to prevent like burnout as far as like just getting, you know, overly exhausted or, you know, how do you manage your energy? Well, I, I try to pace myself and I do like ball players, baseball, basketball, football. They do one game at a time. They don't do the whole season. And that's what I do with the, at least the touring part of it. I really pace myself to rest, recharge my battery, and, and enjoy the night of the performance. That's very, very important to me because every performance is a little different. The audience energy is a little different. It's always positive. It's always loving, but it more or less comes out of it. So I, I just love doing it, and I enjoy I enjoy the thrill of getting up. First of all, getting up in front of people and singing with, you know, thousands of people cheering you on. If You know, it's a great gift 
to be able to do that. So I really love the music. And it's fresh. Every time I sing my hit or the Turtles hits live, it's, it's, it's for the first time. I know a lot of people in the audience have never heard this song live. And so I've got to do it like the records. And that's what I do. Also, with my business career of producing and other things, I just keep myself up to date and follow the trends and try to honor the traditions that have come before in the process of producing and uh, finding new talent or whatever I do. Uh, I'm very lucky I, I've gotten to do this my entire life since I've been 17 years old. Uh, what a gift this has been. And it's always different and, and new every time I get to it. Wow, that's amazing. And I'm curious about this since I don't know your full, you know, full, full history. When you said that you were able to play with Vito and then move into some of taking some of the uh, doo-wop harmonies and, and infusing those into your, your pop songs. How did you learn along the way? Was it by, perfor like, how did you learn to do this? Was it just doing it or, or were there people that were mentoring you along the way? What, what, how does this career get built, I guess? Well, I was fortunate enough to have an interest in music as a young man. And uh, when Elvis came around and Chuck Berry and uh, Little Richard and the Everly Brothers, all these groups came around, the Platters and a lot of the doo-wop groups came around. I really fell in love with the music. I, I began to sing. I actually had to pick up an instrument to heal a broken arm. So I picked up a guitar. And that was my saving grace because it, it, with the guitar, I could write songs, I could sing alone, or I could form a group. So that, help, that helped. I must say, the, Vito and the Elegance took me to my first recording session, and it was a follow-up to their hit. I learned that it wasn't magic, that you can really put musicians in a studio and record them and sing on it, and that would make the records. They also took me to my first rock and roll show at the Brooklyn Paramount in New York City, one of, or the, one of those... Uh, with Alan Freed, mm. who was one of the most famous guys in the 50s, who uh, threw these huge rock and roll shows with the biggest stars of the time. Uh, maybe 12 stars would be on the bill. So they took me to that. So that, that, that really fueled my hunger to, to do something with my life. I also met a guy named Don Kirshner, who was very famous in the 80s for his Don Kirshner's rock concert. Mm -hmm. Well, he was, a, he was a music publisher, and he signed me at 17 to write songs for his firm. And he believed in me. He was my mentor. And uh, when you had a guy like Don Kirshner, who was the biggest man in the music business, believing in you, you started to believe in yourself. And I always felt, I'll learn as I go along. And I did. I watched. I signed with uh, Kirshner's publishing firm. And in the office was Carol King, Neil Sedaka, and Tony Orlando, and Barry Mann, Cynthia Wilde. These great songwriters and great singers were all part of the Kirshner firm. So I got to listen to them and work with them. And that taught me a lot. Amazing. I love the opportunity to talk with you and learn about, you know, firsthand experience in this. And, and it's, uh, it's really super interesting. And I appreciate you carving some time out today to talk with me. And uh, is there anything else you'd like to share about either the experience of being in this movie or anything else going on currently that you'd like to share with the, the podcast listening audience today? Well, I, I really, uh, I'm just very, as I said at the beginning of our interview, I'm very proud to be a part of this wonderful documentary. I think it should get nominated for lots of awards. It's warm, it's informa informational, and it, it has, it, it shows the seeds of 
what music came after because groups like in vogue groups like you know these girl groups boy groups they all use the same harmonies so they really based it on that uh thanks heidi i really appreciate being here with you and anytime you want to talk again just give me a buzz okay thank you so much ron i really appreciate you taking the time and 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 to contributing to the film as well and i look forward to sharing it with with the vibrant visionaries audience thanks again okay ciao ciao Okay, I mean, what a delight <laughs> to talk with Ron Dante was such a pleasure. What a sweetheart of a guy. And yeah, like just the idea of being able to connect with him sometime again in the future, the, the fact that he put out that invitation was so sweet and really, really touched me. Uh, this is the music that I grew up with. My parents were really great at exposing me to a lot of music from blues to soul to rock and roll, uh, bluegrass, country, all sorts of early Americana, and I really appreciate that. I wanted to read a little bit more about the film just to give a bit more context to what it's about. Streetlight Harmonies is a heartwarming and uplifting look at doo-wop music. The sound revolutionized post-World War II America with incredible harmonies that shook up the silent generation in the 1950s and bridged the way for the baby boomers of the 60s and the 70s in the civil rights movement. Okay, boomers? All right. <laughs> uh, through exclusive interviews with legendary singers, these are people I already mentioned earlier, the documentary explores the history and social impact of a formative era in our nation history. That's just just barely even touching the surface on how incredible this stuff is. So in my upcoming conversation with Vito Picone of the Elegance, we get a wonderful overview of the importance and the influence that doo-wop has had on uh, the American landscape of music and, of course, beyond the United States as well. And I absolutely love talking with Vito. He's just a fascinating, fun, sweet guy, and uh, the elegance music is transcendently lush and lovely. So please check them out. He is still performing. He has a website, theelegance.net. He's just such a sweetheart of a guy. You can spy him in a couple of films. He's been in The Sopranos. He's been in Analyze This and Goodfellas and even The Irishman. And talking with Vito, I think this interview is just a wonderful wrap up to these three conversations that I got to have with these fellas. Thank you so much, Vito, for taking the time to talk with me. You can hear how excited I am to talk with Vito because I actually blow out the mic a bit on this. So I apologize for that. We did our best to um, minimize the sound of me blowing out the mic, but I was just so excited to talk with him. He is just a great storyteller and uh, got me uh, up on the mic and sort of talking a little bit louder than I usually do. So I apologize for that, everyone. But please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Vito Picone. Well, I just spoke with Ron Dante, and he says hello and sends his very best to you. I know, Ron. He says he's 12 years old. Yeah, that's what he was saying. You saying that you got him into doing to to playing music. 
his father worked with one of the original members of my group, and um, he uh, got interested in playing a guitar, and my guy worked with him a little bit on learning the guitar, and we took him to a couple of rehearsals, and he got hooked. <laughs> and I took him to one of our recording studios, uh, one of the sessions. I believe it was our second recording, and we took him there, and uh, man, that was the end. He knew he knew what he wanted to do with the rest of his life. Yeah, that's for sure. So I I just got to watch Streetlight Harmonies last night, and and I was so excited when I got to put your name to your face and 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 your legacy with Little Star. Uh, I'm a a big fan of of duop and vocal harmony music and. Actually, my aunts, uh, I don't know if you're familiar, but they were a little, they were popular earlier in the 50s. They were the Bell Sisters. Are you familiar with them at all? Sure, I remember. Yeah. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. So my family are a bunch, uh, a lot of um, of singers. They were the most um, famous as far as they were on the charts and all that, but. Are they still with us or uh, yeah. have we lost any of them? Um, they're both still still with us. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. So, what was the experience like being part of of this movie? Well, I you know, I was I was called on the, on the uh in the very early stages of it if uh, if I would be interested. And I'm always interested in anything that can show, you know, some type of uh, introduction to this music to newer people also. Uh, I'm hoping that when this thing is aired and you know, when it really is shown full, you know, at full tilt that we get a younger audience to look at it also because we need that we need that to happen otherwise you know it's just going to fade away with the uh, with the people in our age group and uh, i think it i think it's interesting enough i think it's basics you know it goes back to the basics to a degree there isn't one act out there today that hasn't taken a little of our music and uh, you know i can i can go on and on and find individuals like uh, bruno mars who you know is pretty much trained and, and bred in the doo-wop field you know his father was a disc jockey in hawaii you know uh, you know and was a big doo-wop fan and we were we were very instrumental in the in, in the initial goings of the music in in hawaii little star was the biggest selling record in the history of the hawaiian islands in 1958 oh wow and uh and we were flown out there and i mean really flown out there there were no jets at the time we actually were on a uh, transcontinental turbo prop, <laughs> which was eight hours to California and nine hours to Hawaii. Oh my gosh! And um, when we got off, you know, there were no, there were no, uh, you know, no the ramps were just a ladder onto the tarmac. You know, when we got there, they closed all the schools and had the schools. The kids meet us at the airport, almost like the Beatles. Wow! And this was before the Beatles. This was at least five, six years before the Beatles. So. The windup was we got off that plane and we saw thousands of kids on on a tarmac and and had a police motorcycle escort take us to the hotel. Uh, great, great feeling there. There was a gentleman out there named Tom Moffat. Anybody that's in the production end or the, you know, or or has been a promoter, I should say, in uh, in any in any stretch of the imagination, would know Tom Moffat. Uh, he started out as a DJ in the middle of a pineapple field in Hawaii. And uh, we got on a little rickety plane and flew to Kauai. And uh, while we were there, we uh, we got the opportunity to meet this one disc jockey sitting in a cement building, in a cinder block building with an antenna in the middle of a dole pineapple field. <laughs> and we went from there to becoming the biggest promoter uh, out there. He brought the Beatles, the Stones, and 
just about Elvis. He brought everybody out to Hawaii and became a major, major promoter and a major influence in this music. Hmm. But it was a, it was an experience. There was a gentleman by the name of Duke Hanamoku, who is a legend in Hawaii. And uh, he had been a gold medalist for the uh, surfing, uh, I believe. He got a, a gold medal for surfing. Hmm. He was our chaperone. And uh, now I understand there's a statue of him somewhere in the middle of Honolulu. You know, so we were on the ground floor of a lot of things out there. One of the kids that was out in the tarmac that time that saw us uh, when we got off the plane was uh, was actually almost like, like uh, Ron Dante. We were talking about Ronnie earlier, you know, how he was influenced by, you know, coming to our rehearsals and things like that. Uh, this gentleman turned out to become the lead singer of the association. Oh, wow. And he said he was inspired, you know, and wanted to be in the, in the music business when he saw that, you know, that crowd at the airport meeting us there. So it's interesting how all these little things, uh, you know, have developed. And I find these things out over the years. And it's a great feeling to know that we, you know, that we were instrumental in, in somebody else's lives. Absolutely. Yeah. And I like how you connected those dots there, because sometimes when we're just out making um, entertainment and, and for the masses, we just don't know where, what little seeds and sparks were, were um, putting out there to the world. And that certainly there's all sorts of folks out there that it's been a part of their lives for a long time that are maybe more my age or a little bit older. And then, but younger folks now, like you said, it's important for them to understand. And I think um, talking about Bruno Mars, that's a perfect example because they, um, I mean, when you hear his music too, you can tell how, you know, how inspired by <laughs> early music it is. You know what's in the news? You know, Huey Lewis was exactly, uh, you know, he, he he took 50s music to a whole new level. Right. Are you familiar with um, John Waters, that, that director? John Waters? Yeah, John Waters. He has put a lot of um, early rhythm and blues and doo-wop and soul into his movies. So I think maybe people who are familiar with John Waters, that's one touchstone is that the, his, his uh, film soundtracks have those or i think of also like uh martin scorsese who you have a connection with him too as well right martin scorsese as far as i know is probably one of the biggest uh and and uh i was i was fortunate enough to to be in goodfellas his movie goodfellas and recently more recently in the movie the irishman oh wow and in those movies you know and not only those movies but just about every one of his movies he has had these songs from you know, from the 50s and uh, I'd say mid 50s into the all pre-Beatles, all before the, uh, you know, before the 62. Mm -hmm. So the actual The Irishman, he opens up the movie with the, In the Still of the Night by the Five Satins and he closes it with that movie. And in between, you've got, you know, songs like Sleepwalk and a couple of other songs from that era. You know, you can hear the, the influence that the music, but he grew up, he grew up loving that music. He grew up down in the Lower East Side in, in, in Italy and in New York, in Little Italy in New York City. You know, so he was there when it all happened. And, uh, you know, at this point, he's 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 been able to, to, to introduce those songs to a whole new generation, which I've been always proud of him for doing it. I always wish that he would have taken one of mine <laughs> and used one of mine. I thought I thought I was going to be there one day when uh, we, did, we were doing The Irishman and he stopped the uh, he stopped the movie, uh, you know, the production at one point And he called me over and he said, what's the Vito? What's the name of your second record? I said, please believe me. 
He said, yeah, that's it, that's it. He said, I love that song. He said, I love the intricacies you did with your voice, you know. So I'm saying to myself, oh, God, here we go. You know, maybe this will be in the movie. But unfortunately, uh, you know, when I heard, when I did see the final movie, you know, the, 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 the final cut, I said, oh, boy. I said, I guess, I guess, guess we didn't, uh, we didn't make the cut, you know. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so, but, you know, but my face got in there. I would have rather the song got in there, but my my face got in there anyway. <laughs> you know, this particular project now, I'm really happy about it. And speaking of faces, I had just had a, I had just had some serious uh, heart operation, uh, only only weeks and weeks before that. And uh, and when I saw the when I saw the final cut of this, uh, I, I saw I looked like I was uh, just just taken out of the hospital in a wheelchair. Mm. You know, so I was, oh my God! I said, How, you know, this is going to be this is going to be you know hold you know another experience you know but uh you know when i saw the whole the whole thing and the finished product i was so proud of what they did they did a real good job on it and uh, i th- i think it's going to be interesting to a lot of people absolutely it's it, it will definitely be uh one of the resources that i i suggest to people and share with people um my podcast is called vibrant visionaries and and um, I like to profile people who have made impactful, unique, wonderful, long-lasting entertainment and art. And certainly this music is, uh, is at the heart of some of my favorite uh, long-lasting music that I've performed as a, as a singer in rhythm and blues and soul and, and, and done a little doo-wop. And I even noticed they mentioned... Uh, in the movie briefly a song called it ain't the meat and i was like oh my gosh i i used to sing that song <laughs> i kind of forgot yeah, right. about it <laughs> that's funny that's funny where, where were you where were you based out of where, where did you come um, from mostly well i grew up in uh southern california uh orange county which is where my aunts the bell sisters are from but i spent the bulk of my performing times in uh, sacramento california we actually had a pretty good uh had a pretty good run out in the california area we toured there quite often and uh in the in the early goings uh, we became very good friends with the uh with bobby freeman who did do you want to dance mm-hmm. and he was a californian boy and uh and uh, his manager got very uh very tight with my manager they started doing things together and uh, we found ourselves working together a lot with bobby freeman there was also a group out there, a young group, but they didn't, they didn't, uh, they didn't have any national success. But uh, I think they were called the Internationals, if I'm not mistaken. Mm. And one of the fellows that was in the group was Johnny Mathis's younger brother, Ralph, mm. uh, Ralph Mathis. And uh, you know, they they actually became like the opening act of of that particular package that we were out. And the Olympics were from out there too. The Olympics had uh, Western movies, mm. and uh, you know, had a couple of uh, a couple of hit records. And um, that little package, well, like I said, that was a California package. We worked, we worked up and down the coast with that for a while. Actually, it probably was uh, it probably hurt us in the long run because we were out on the road so long with Little Star that by the time we got back into the studio to record a second record, we had pretty much had uh, you know lost a little of the momentum, mm-hmm. and uh, and I think a lot of acts had at that point started to copy. The, you know, the the sounds of of uh, of little star and uh, you know it just made I was I was insignificant to a certain degree and we never really followed up with anything major after that if that would have been that would have been the case uh, you know we probably would have been a lot more successful at you know at, at sustaining in, in the business uh, 
you know, I would say, I don't know how much more I could sustain. We're still working more than ever at 62 years later. So I guess I have no complaints there, you know. But I think a couple of hit records back to back would have opened up a lot more doors for us, especially that the, you know, the, the industry started to expand so much more when, you know, after a year or two, we, uh, you know, we only found four or five radio stations playing that. There was only like three or two or three television stations playing 50s music. So, you know, only two two years later made such a major difference. There was so much going on, so much more going on. But it's fun being a pioneer to a certain degree, and it's, it's and it actually is harmful to, in a way, too. Right. So, but I have no no complaints. <laughs> well, I think, um, yeah, and I think the film gives a good amount of levity there of, of sharing what the joys and, and the successes were like, but also what can be um, harmful or difficult. And, and um, as I was watching it with my husband, he was saying, gosh, it's so hard to imagine that there was a time where even, you know, music that was just simply because it was uh, performed by people of color wasn't being played on ra major radio stations and people, you know, I think it's a good history lesson to be able to reflect on some of the, those challenges of um, before things were so, you know, integrated and mixed up and, and everybody's, you know, playing music on all the stations now. And there's hardly any particular genres. In well, fact, yeah, one of the things that I've, I'm always, I've always been proud of was the fact that we did not have success you know, uh, covering somebody's record. You know, we did our own, and um, and in, in the beginning, in the very early beginnings, like I said, you know, we were we were pioneers, and you know, white acts were really, you know, all they they were covering the black acts material, and, and the black acts really never got the notoriety they deserved. Uh, Little Darling by the Diamonds is a perfect example. You know, it was originally recorded by the Gladiolas. You know, and, uh, you know, and it, it just, it, there were so many other songs like that. Pat Boone came along and he was covering a lot of the stuff too. And, uh, you know, so like I said, when we actually recorded and the record came out, it was us and we were happy that it was our material and it, and it was all our doings. We we were the ones that made it. We didn't copy anybody else. And, uh, you know, it, it, you know, you had five white Italian kids from Staten Island, New York. I mean, that, uh, you know, that's who we were and we were very proud of it. Yeah, and um, you know your your song is so lovely, and your harmonies are so are so beautiful. And I'm wondering who were musical influences um, for you? Well, I had, I had we actually all the whole group, the entire group. There were five of us originally. We were all big fans of the Heartbeats, and the Heartbeats at the time had Thousand Miles Away. That was their big record, but they had other records like Crazy for You and Darling, How Long, and People Are Talking and. Uh, we, I had every one of those records and loved every one of them. And um, ironically enough, I, it actually wasn't ironically, we almost planned it. Um, but we took the, when we started to audition, it was all live auditioning at the time. We actually bought the 45s or looked at our 45s. And on the records, there was an address to the labels. Every company had their address on it. So we copied the addresses and we started to knock on doors. Or so that's what our intentions were. And we went right to Hull Records, which was the first label we went to because the heartbeats were there. And the woman that owned it, she fell in love with Little Star. And she literally, from that minute, uh, had handed us some contracts and asked them to take them home to our parents and have the lawyers look at them. And we wound up signing with Hull Records. And Shep, who was the lead singer, who later on became Shep in the Limelights with Daddy's Home, mm -hmm. Shep was, was like a mentor to me. He was like... Uh, 
you know, it, it was it was incredible to be signed with the, the label that had my idol, and he was definitely one of my idols. Matter of fact, in, in Thousand Miles Away, the background uh, is is rat-a-tat-tat, and uh, you know, you'll notice in Little Star we we've used rat-a-tat-tat, and you know, in our background, it was it was a you know it was actually a, a tribute to the heartbeats. Just that's the way I felt about it. Mm. And Sam Cooke was a big idol of mine, you know, at the time. So uh, I had the opportunity to. Uh, you know, to meet him at one point. And, uh, you know, those basically were my, my, my inspirations and, and, and definitely idols of mine. Uh, of course, I, I mean, I can go on and on the, the groups like the Moonglows and, you know, and people like that, the Flamingos. I mean, these, these groups were totally instrumental in, in, you know, in creating what we, what we called, uh, there was no word doo-wop at the time. It was, it was never called doo-wop. It was rock and roll. I don't think doo-wop actually didn't come into, into play until the seventies. Well, late the early seventies. You know, we thought we were rock and roll singers. That's who we thought we were. You know, and uh, and that's what we were proud of. We did it ourselves. We actually were the second white rock and roll group to have a number one record. Wow. The first were the Juniors. They beat us by about uh, I think about four months, five months. We were both signed to ABC Paramount at the time, but it was back to back, two white vocal groups having number one records, and we were the first and second. To ever accomplish that you know if you look at it now you know before the beatles and the bgs and, and the stones and the four seasons and the beach boys you know we were first you know we were second first and second yeah when i was thinking about the flamingos and um and you and some of the other vocal harmony groups the doo-wop groups about the the rock and roll but also the the dreamy ballad like sounds of your songs and and how romantic and lovely they are. And uh, it, it just brought me great joy to, to listen. And, and this is definitely one of those documentaries where you can feel like it's one where people will be able to just go back and, and rewatch and rewatch and re-listen and make notes and, you know, d- go on a, a discovery tour of, of all these different wonderful performers. You know, there, there's a there's a little story. Uh, there was a girl that we we worked a couple of times we, with in the early stages. Alan Freed was a major contributor to this music in the beginning, and he would put concerts at the Brooklyn Fox and the Brooklyn Paramount. And on his shows, on all of his early shows, he had a young girl named Joanne Campbell. She was a little short blonde. She used to wear those very tight. Uh, I think at that time they called them clam diggers, or you know, or, you know, and, and uh, pedal pushers or whatever they used to call them. Now they're capris, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, and she actually, when she retired, when she quit, she actually married a, a guitar player from Ohio. And one night they were listening to their 45s in front of a fireplace. And uh, this is what I heard the story, how it goes anyway. And while they were listening to the 45s, her singer, songwriting, uh, guitar playing husband picked up the guitar and he wrote a song called Lost in the 50s. Hmm. And it was recorded by Ronnie Millsap, became a gold record and a, and a million seller from Ronnie Millsap. But it's basically all about what you're saying. You know, you, 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 all of a sudden you're just lost and you're listening to this beautiful music. And he even used a sample in it of In the Still of the Night. Mm. And uh, the song became a very popular song. Matter of fact, we do it in our act, you know, because it actually ties, uh, you know, uh, almost today's music into into the 50s and shows the appreciation that people had and that there's still a, there's still room for it. 
Absolutely. Well, I think we'll wrap up. I, I really appreciate you spending so much time sharing some of these stories and, and your experience in making the movie and, and making the music. And um, is there anything else that you'd like to share about what you're up to now or anything else just as we wrap up the podcast today? You know, like I said, we're, we're busier now than we probably were in the 50s and 60s. And uh, there's so much going on. Of course, we just had a we hit a wall with this virus, you know, and unfortunately, a lot of the dates have been not so much canceled, but postponed until we see what's going on, until the medical professionals, you know, can put a handle on this and, and hopefully, you know, in time to save enough lives. It's getting, it's really getting out of hand. But the fact is, is that the music is still there. It's been there. It's going to be there. And I'm proud to be at least part of it. I'm glad to be part of the, the very, very beginnings of it. And, uh, and I watch I watch a lot of the, you know, all of the other people that come out. You, I know that we have to cut this off in a second, but there is so much more that you can really look at. You can look at Michael Jackson. If you say Michael Jackson, Michael Jackson was really Jackie Wilson reincarnated. You know, if you look at all the moves, everything, even the moonwalk, everything is, is Michael Jackson is, is, is Jackie Wilson. And now you got Jackie Wilson's son out there who's, who's creating this whole new, you know, this new vibe with uh, showing people what his father did. And that's it. Uh, you've got the, on the on the uh, Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. You've got Questlove, the drummer with the with the band Roots. His father was Lee Andrews from the Hearts, you know, and he used to play drums for his father on some of the shows that we did when he was 18, 19 years old. So there's so much going on that came from the people who brought this music to you first, and and that's what's important. That's what makes me proud. That's great. And people like yourself. Yeah. I mean, if you weren't doing at this point. You know, I, I, I've said it a thousand times. If you don't appear, you disappear, you know, and, and when you make us appear like this and, and they do it with the documentary, you know, then we then we don't disappear. We keep staying there. And that and that's what this is all about. So well, my hat's off to you and everyone that's doing the same thing you're doing. God bless you. Thank you. Mm, well, thank you so much, Vito. I really appreciate it. And stay safe and, and healthy out there. And um, <laughs> I'll say that to everybody listening to, you know, this is also a perfect time when we're when we're um you know forced to stay at home like just whatever you listen to whether it's a hi-fi or your computer or um, your phone or however you listen to music this is a perfect time to discover uh, the roots of some of the, your favorite music now is is to go through and, and delve in and play it while you're doing the dishes or at night when you just turn down the lights and you know just let it flow flood your home because it, it's just so moving and and it's just something that to me also helps me process emotions at a difficult time right now where we're flooded with new information every day that can be overwhelming and music is so soothing you know the basic rule is go back you know go back to basics and this is the perfect way to do it you know times are bad you're stuck in a house you don't know what to do with yourself you can only watch so many movies go in there and dig out those 45s or those CDs, or those whatever, and just listen to the old music, and just let it take you back to where you can forget about what's going on outside the door. I love it. Let's end there. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you, Vito. It was my pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you. Absolutely, my pleasure. All right. Okay, that wraps up another episode of Vibrant Visionaries with Heidi Bennett. You can find all episodes of Vibrant Visionaries at 
VibrantVisionaries.com. You can stay connected with me at VibrantVisionaries on Instagram. On Twitter, I'm at VibrantVizCast. And if you want to get in on the Facebook group, check out Vibrant Visionaries on Facebook or look for me, Heidi M. Bennett, on Facebook, and I'll get you in our group where we can continue the conversation. Thanks so much for listening and ciao!